From the archives of the East Oregonian, we bring you the murder of Sheriff Till Taylor. A hundred years later to the day, we'll take you through the sheriff's story, the events leading up to his murder, and the manhunt that ensued for the men responsible. I'm your host, Alex Castle, and I'm joined by our producer, Ben Lonergan. Manhunt Today centers chiefly near Squaw Creek. No contact with outlaws, read the headline on the July 27, 1920 edition of the East Oregonian. We left off in episode two with Jim Owens and Neil Hart split from the rest of the group of five fugitives. Jack Rathy was on his own, headed north along the Umatilla River looking for food and water, while Richard Patterson and Lewis Anderson were walking along the Oregon Trail, dodging out of the sight of passing cars. The night of July 26, Jinx Taylor was named the successor to his murdered older brother and took up the lead on the manhunt for the men responsible. But back in Pendleton on July 27th, the climate surrounding the city and Taylor's murder was shifting into its next stages. In the immediate hours after his death, the local residents were angrily and frantically forming mobs to search for the men responsible. There were three Pendleton hardware stores at the time, all of which opened their doors and encouraged men to help themselves to all of their guns and ammunition. As Ernest L. Crockett wrote in his book, The Murder of Till Taylor, the store owners told the men taking the guns and ammunition, check in with me later, don't delay. Those first 30 hours or so of the search were mostly disorganized. But July 27th offered a chance for the community to collect themselves and mourn the loss of Taylor with his funeral. That morning, groups of locals and visitors from around the state walked in procession to the Umatilla County Courthouse to pay their respects to Till Taylor's body, where it sat for four hours before later being transported downtown to the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer. The Church of the Redeemer, the streets and yard around it, were filled with hundreds of people that afternoon, who paid their respects to the late Sheriff Tillman D. Taylor, who met his death at the hands of criminals on Sunday. A never-ending procession passed through the courthouse during the morning and afternoon hours where Sheriff Taylor lay in state, guarded by members of the Knights Templar. Myriads of blooms decked the church and casket, and mingled with the choice flowers were simple wreaths and clusters of garden flowers. People from every walk in life brought tribute to the beloved officer. Music for the service, which was conducted by Reverend Alfred Lockwood, was by the vetted choir of the church. Face to Face was sung by Clyde Phillips, and two hymns, It Is Well With My Soul and Abide With Me, were sung as well as a chant. Members of the Knight Templar, old friends of Sheriff Taylor, acted as pallbearers and wore the Knights Templar uniform and plumed hat. In attendance to honor Till Taylor were members of the Pendleton Lodge of Elks, of which he was also a member, and he had also taken the York and Scottish rites of the Masonic Lodge. And in addition to his friends and family, which included his wife Claire, his mother, and his aunt, the mayor of Portland, George Baker, attended the funeral to honor Till Taylor and Dr. Lee Steiner, who served as superintendent at the state hospital in Salem, was in attendance to represent the state of Oregon. Reverend Alfred Lockwood read the obituary and eulogized Till Taylor that afternoon and described him as a kind but stern man, unyielding and uncompromising in the face of lawlessness. As Ernest L. Crockett wrote, strong men wept like children as the coffin lid was closed on the face which had always been illuminated by love for his fellow men. Many in the crowd were surprised that afternoon, though, when Reverend Lockwood broke from his eulogy in the middle and spoke out 
weighing in on the debate that was already raging among the community about how justice could best be served to avenge the loss of Till Taylor. Lockwood's stance on the issue was that Till Taylor would have never consented to the lynching of the five outlaws. As he's quoted as saying that afternoon, a lesson is this to us just at this time when we are stirred with the dastardliness of this deed. He being dead yet speaketh. He urges us to hush and still all talk of mob violence or resort to lynch law. Let the judge and the jury adjudicate the cases of these hardened and desperate criminals if they should be captured alive. He would tell us emphatically that the two wrongs never make a right. It was murder, brutal, dastardly, damnable murder that snuffed out the candle of this noble, brave, and gentle life. And yet I am sure that could he speak to us at this hour, he would tell us that the only punishment he would demand would be the punishment the court would decree. Reading from Ernest L. Crockett's The Murder of Till Taylor, a great uneasiness prevailed in Pendleton. The unspoken question concerned the fate of the murdering jailbreakers if and when they were caught. Some felt they would be shot or hanged on the spot. More were sure the avenging citizens would see all five hung in the courthouse yard after a short, impromptu trial. There were those who desired to follow the advice given by Reverend Lockwood, insisting that the law should take its course. In favor of this latter group, it was pointed out that the law of capital punishment by hanging had only recently been restored in Oregon, and this would be an exemplary first use of capital punishment since the new law had gone into effect. Between 1904 and 1914, when the death penalty was repealed by a 50.04% vote, 24 men were hanged at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Mere months before the murder of Sheriff Till Taylor, voters had restored the death penalty in Oregon through a 56% vote. And on November 5, 1920, Neil Hart, formerly known as Emmett Bancroft, became the first to be hanged since the reenactment of the death penalty with two additional accomplices being executed on July 7, 1922. Fifteen hangings followed Bancroft's, the last being James E. Kingsley on November 30, 1931. At that time, the state stopped using the gallows and began using lethal gas. As the funeral closed, Jinx Taylor, the newly appointed sheriff, left the graveside of his departed brother and returned to work heading up the manhunt for the fugitives. As Crockett wrote, his eyes were kindled with the fire of battle and his mind centered upon the capture of those who had murdered his brother. Meanwhile, help from around the state and all of the Northwest came into Pendleton and Umatilla County to assist in the search. On the Umatilla Indian Reservation, the tribes organized some of their most expert trackers to help lead some of the posses in tracking and finding any clues they could of the men. A wanted poster was finally printed offering 6000 for the capture of the five fugitives, dead or alive. News of the manhunt and interest in it spread throughout the state and all across the region. Some newspapers picked up the story in Washington, Idaho, and elsewhere. Request was telephoned to Portland the afternoon of July 27, 1920, for Alf Afdal, a U.S. Internal Revenue officer to come to Pendleton and assist in the search for the five escaped prisoners. Ofdahl had worked in the region on illicit liquor cases and was thoroughly familiar with the terrain. More bloodhounds were also set to arrive the following morning 
from Boise, Idaho. Dogs were offered to assist in the search, and local officials requested that they be sent over the night. As tips and rumors of where the fugitives were in the countryside continued to come in, Owens and Hart continued to plunder their way through the area, breaking into a cabin and holding the Butcher Young family at gunpoint as they took food and any supplies that they could and departing back into the night. Jack Rathie, still with Deputy Marin's gun in hand, walked alone down from Cabbage Hill to the Umatilla River and then headed upriver where he came across a cabin that he robbed of bread and shoes. Elsewhere, Patterson and Anderson, on their own, found a spot to hide for the night and hold up there, still without food or water. But as the search continued throughout the night of July 27th, that's where we'll leave it for this episode. On our next episode, we'll take you through the events of July 28th, 1920, as the search becomes more organized, progress remains slim, suspicions and rumors begin to spread around the community. <laughs>